very good afternoon to you. It's Thursday. It's one o'clock, one minute past. You're listening to Uncorked with Brian and Kath right here on River Radio. How are you doing, Kath? I'm fine. Good. Just, just fiddling with my phone and not being in control. Fiddling I do apologise. with your phone <laughs> at this stage of the game? My I know. goodness. What have we got coming up today on Uncorked? We're going to be looking at canopy management. Canopy management? We no, going don't, camping? Don't, don't get too excited. Yes, exactly. Awnings, yeah. tents, things of that nature. Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to a festival tomorrow, so I might be doing a bit of camping. Ooh, Could come in man. handy. You brave man. Yes. We're not, we're not really talking about camping, are we? No. No. What's canopy management? It's the management of the canopy of a vine. Oh. Yeah, so, so it's talking... kind of, it's like a shelter for vines in essence. Okay. But it does a little bit more than that. Super. The, super, energy, super. the energy store, the store, the powerhouse of the vine. So that, that's what we're going to be doing yeah. when, we, when we start our dive-in section. Um, before that though, uh, no, but oh, after that. After that. Um, after that, we are going to we, very special guest. Trusting that traffic and things behave, we'll have a guest coming in. We'll have Henry from Harrow and Hope. So we have. Wow. A producer with us in the studio today, fingers crossed. That is just fantastic. I'm looking forward to that because um, it's Henry Lathwaite, isn't it? Uh, yes. Son of Lathwaite fame in wine yes. and wine making. So obviously he knows an awful lot about wine, wine making. I think grown up with it in his blood. Yeah, literally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not at the age of two <laughs> in that sense, but yes, around it, absorbing it all his life. And yeah. that's, so that we're going we're gonna to literally get it from the horse's mouth. Exactly. Although that was a, a dog effect. A dog, yes, exactly. I don't know if anyone else could hear that, but there was a little dog bark. Quite bizarre. Quite bizarre. Anything could happen in your life. Vineyard dogs, that's the thing. They're the best. Really? Yeah, vineyard dogs. There's whole books on vineyard dogs. Really? Yes. Well, we'll have to look into that. But before we do, um, should we dive in? Go on. Dive in to River Radio. Uncorked. You should really save uncorked rather than river. Anyway, anyway, we've dived in. We've dived in. We've, we've, we've taken the plunge, quite literally. We're swimming in the deep end. We are indeed. <laughs> Okie dokie then. Um, canopies and um, viniculture. Yeah, viticulture, viniculture. Oh, so, but that's the whole lot together. But I suppose canopy management specifically would be the viti part. So in, in the vineyard, the bit where you've got dirt and soil and plants. Yeah, and, and when you're talking about the canopy, we're talking about the leaves and things that grow yes. out of the yeah. actual vine, So strictly we? speaking, in the context of viticulture specifically, it's the practice that balances the reproductive and the vegetative processes of a grapevine. Okay. So basically the reproductive being the grapes and the vegetative Say that after a few. Vegetative. Yeah, the vegetative being the, the leaves of the vine itself. Okay. Yeah, so the purpose really, and that, well, is to make sure that you've got healthy fruit being produced and that everything is in balance. That's the goal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because a lot of people probably just think that you, you literally just plant your vineyards and just pick your grapes. Easy well, as I'm, that, I'm isn't sure, it? I'm sure that some people do, and there's some old vine vineyards that I'm fairly certain were planted that way and do all right. Okay. They're perfectly fine. In fact, they're amazing. But we obviously have learned a lot more since the late 1800s and we keep developing and learning more. And so that's where people started to look specifically more at canopy management practices and what they could do to enhance and help the production of better quality grapes, which lead to, in theory, better quality wine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, so and, and, all, all great wine is made in the vineyard. Okay. Yeah, that's an adage that you have thrown around quite a lot in the wine trade. I always say that. You can always mess up good fruit, but you can't necessarily. It's like putting makeup on a pig. 
<laughs> you want it to be you want good healthy fruit coming in right. to the best of your ability and that's sort of where canopy management comes in okay so um you've got a pig in lipstick now in your mind i have, you? have an idea yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the first thing then um that jumps into my mind when yeah. you're talking about this sort of stuff is is the green harvest you're you're taking away yep. certain leaves to a green harvest specifically comes a bit later and that's removing unripe green grapes oh but there's lots of things that happen before that oh well let, let's start so we'll, we'll, we'll backtrack a little bit yes so let's do that there are many that will say that effective canopy management is really implemented prior to planting when you start considering your site selection the vines that you're going to plant the rootstocks that you're going to use and then the density of that planting so are you going to space your rows by a meter are you going to space them by two meters is it going to be you know all those things are brought and you know the, the, the aspect all those things that you think about with a site have to be considered and if you consider those first then everything else ni- nicely moves on from there but canopy management practices can be obviously used in hindsight and retrospect too and can be tweaked and altered dependent on the season so really yeah that that that's sort of where it starts though in theory in your planning stage so it's one thing that i'd be curious to ask henry when he arrives yeah 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 and so we're we're, we're trying to improve the quality of the grapes this yes, is this the is balance what it's all about of the grapes when they ripen how they ripen the sugar acid balance in them so that you get a grape that's fully ripe when you pick it mm-hmm. when your tannins are ripe all those things at the right time so that you can have a coordinated effort at harvest yeah so that's yeah. the goal so all those those fundamentals that you have of tannin in a red wine but even to a certain extent in whites because there's still some phenolics in the skin um the development of and the accumulation of sugar and acid as the grape goes into the veraison phase so the main there's different techniques that get applied um but obviously shoot th- thinning easy for you to say yeah, exactly <laughs> shoot thinning or thinning of the shoots pruning removing of the leaves the positioning and the training of those shoots and where they are so where you have your fruiting zones on the vine as well as things then later on like green harvest, but removing suckers and things like that. So it's lots of little things you can do from day one, but also how you manage your canopy can help influence the pests and things that you have oh. and the prevalence of pests in a vineyard, yeah. Lots of, lots of questions just popped go up on, then. So on. the first thing, thinning, thinning the shoot. How do you thin a shoot? Well, you're removing some of the little shoots from the vines. Oh, okay, so it's almost theory, like pruning. Yes, but kind of, but it's... Well, no, because pruning is what you you will do it winter usually so pruning specifically is done when the vine if you're actually cutting through canes and things on a vine okay you do it when the sap isn't rising so that they don't ooze out all their sap so you do it that's why you have winter pruning ah. so when the temperatures drop by a certain level so which i swear is the hardest job in the world having seen people do it in winter with blistering cold winds and snow and frost you think god they deserve a medal yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. there's nothing easy about it so thinning thinning the actual shoot yes, then is just snapping off each, the new ones yes and having a certain number so that you can control how many bunches of grapes that you may have on the vine um so that they can all ripen successfully okay so that's one of the first ones yeah and obviously pruning is part of the process um but it, they all happen at different times Okay, yeah. okay, right, so that's, that's And removing good. of leaves, perhaps, is something else that happens. Mm-hmm. So if, for example, you've got a really, really thick, dense canopy um, and it's crowding around your grapes and you have lots of really wet weather and there's no wind, then there's a really good chance that you're going to get rot developing. So you might re- remove some leaves to encourage wind flow because it helps keep air moving and reduces humidity and dampness within the canopy and around the fruiting zone where the vines are, the, gra- the grapes are. So if you actually go into a vineyard and have a look especially if they're on trellises, you'll often see sort of nice, neat, nice, neat top part, which is all leaves and foliage. And then you'll see there's a clear part where the grapes are all sitting in a particular bank. And then you've obviously got things down below. Now, they might not all be nice and 
exactly at the same height, but they're broadly speaking from vine to vine within the same zone. Yeah, yeah. And keeping airflow moving through there can be really important if you've had wet weather. So you might do some shoot thinning to help keep air moving and airflow, which prevents the increasing or the risk of rot or mildew. Or alternatively, this is where you're playing a delicate game. You might remove too many leaves and then you get a really really warm patch with lots of sunlight and you can sunburn your grapes which is also not good so you might want to protect your grapes from the sun so they fall into the shade to reduce the impact of you know if you put a an unripe tomato on the windowsill yeah and it ripens really quickly in direct sunlight Mm -hmm. although the leaves are obviously photosynthesizing and providing energy for the vine to ripen grapes direct sunlight can also increase accumulation of sugars and ripeness and you might not want them to happen that quickly so if you've got a fruiting or a canopy zone that helps protect those grapes then the process can has you have a bit more control this this seems to be like a really delicate process because Mm. if you're if you're removing certain leaves and shoots and Mm. bits and pieces to increase the airflow i mean how how well, it's just a micro fraction and and in different parts of the vineyard you might have different issues so they can tweak and tailor accordingly, but also they position the shoots early on in the season, and by positioning the shoots, they, they're helping control that fruiting zone. So wow. that they know. And also, you want all of your leaves to be doing their job. You want them all to be photosynthesising, so how you manage that top part of the canopy can have an impact as well. So they would, they would in different You're areas... You're thinking about your garden now, aren't I you? I am, I think, yeah. I've got a lot to think about here. I really have got a lot to think about. <laughs> because in, in different, We've put you off yet. <laughs> yes, different parts of the vineyard... They are doing slightly different potentially, alterations, yeah. potentially, because that is the amount of effect it can well, have. Well, often I've, you know, I've been into vineyards that are on a slope. Yeah. And, and at one end of the slope, there are, much, there are more trees, and the other side, you know, there's water running nearby, and that creates different microclimates. Sure. So, you know, if you, you're running a tap and you put your hand above the water, that say you're running a tap in a sink or a bath, mm-hmm. a bath's usually easier, you can feel airflow because the movement of the water sure. creates airflow. Yeah. So that will have an impact on how that part of the vineyard behaves. And then another part, well, perhaps lower down, Wow. they've got, it's more sheltered, they probably have less airflow. So they might have, weirdly, sometimes you can see that a part of the vineyard has more mildew or rot than another part because one area is more sheltered. But then in the same way, if you have a really windy year, the part that's more sheltered may do better than the part that isn't as sheltered. Or because it's sloped, one part of a vineyard may get more water because of the way it rains and it accumulates down at the bottom if the drainage isn't as good at the bottom. And that will affect how your grapes ripen and how your canopy behaves. So they can tweak and change things to help with that as well. Because sometimes as well, depending on the rootstock you've chosen, you might get really vigorous canopies and they grow with certain varieties and they take control. And if the canopy's the or the vine has to put effort into keeping the canopy going then they don't ripen the grapes as well okay so controlling the number of the, the mass of foliage can be an issue but you talked about green harvesting which is part of this process as yeah. well yeah which is some growers prior to prior to veraison which is the part where green, green grapes start to turn so in the white grape very often yeah. it grows <laughs> and it starts to go a bit more golden yellow and with a red grape it starts to go red as opposed to green they'll remove the excess bunches so that the vine thinks it's got say it's got 10 bunches yeah it thinks it's got to ripen 10 you remove just enough so you move five it puts all the energy into ripening 10 but there's five there so those get nice and extra ripe 
Nice and, and juicy. We've got someone here that could probably tell you more about it than me because he's hands on. It's just walked through well, the door. It's we're going to find out in a few <laughs> moments' time because, um, yeah, this, this is far more in depth than I ever thought. Talk I, about canopy management. I literally <laughs> thought. <laughs> See, <laughs> little, little, tiny, tiny changes can make an enormous difference. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, Brian, yeah. Brian's had his mind, yeah. yeah, exactly. And Brian's just had his mind blown by the fact that even in different parts of a vineyard, you might have completely different philosophies for your canopy management, dependent on everything from drainage to tiny little microclimate changes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, something else that you mentioned earlier on was suckers. suckers. Now, I don't know what suckers are. Suckers could, you know, fly around the vineyard. They They're could idiots. burrow. Suckers or are idiots. They could... <laughs> Fools. <laughs> They're fools in the vineyard, so we remove them. They're escorted off the premises and ask kindly to leave. I, I, I should imagine so, but what are they? I'm going to hand over to someone who knows better than me what suckers oh, are. Well, we should really introduce... We should introduce, um, we should introduce said, said, said individual. Said individual. So uh, let me say a massive warm welcome to uh, Henry Lathwaite. Welcome, Henry. Afternoon. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Welcome to River Radio. So, um, yeah, before we sort of get into to you and your history in it and your... your approach to winemaking and stuff like that the burning question as you've heard <laughs> suckers what they are, are suckers they aren't, they aren't necessarily just idiots suckers. Yeah. <laughs> or, or laterals is another yeah laterals I think well, anyone who's grown a tomato plant will probably know the, the word suckers it's basically all the lateral shoots that come out uh, between the, 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 the shoots excess growth essentially that you don't need that oh. you essentially take off so that the vine focuses its its energy into producing fruit instead of producing essentially leaves. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you're sort of training the vine to focus its energy on on fruit ripening. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's okay. essentially what it is. Well, there you go. I've learned something already, <laughs> and you've literally been in the studio 30 seconds. Yeah. So, Suckers. Yeah. Every day's a school day. Yeah. Every, every day's a school day, yeah, exactly. So they're like, yeah, they're little laterals. Well, fantastic stuff. Well, listen, uh, don't go anywhere because um, after this short little sneaky break, we're going to have an in-depth um, talk and chat and find out all about um, Henry Lathwaite and Harrow and Hope in Marlow. And, and one of, more importantly, one of our favourite things, fizzy English wine. Fizzy English <laughs> Which doesn't sound wine. glamorous. We love English sparkling wine. Need to name. Oh, yeah. Bring <laughs> it on because, the, you know, we are going to get that heat wave um, and I've got to be ready for it with my wine. So don't go anywhere. That is all coming up right after this. The soundtrack to life in the Thames Valley. River... Radio. On the web. To the Batmobile. Let's go. On your mobile. Hello. And on Alexa too. River Radio. That's it. Hmm. I pronounce that River Radio, but I'm always working on how I say things and I might not have it right. <laughs>
through the yes. quiet lanes of Marlow. Marlow today, yeah. <laughs> Last week it was in Piemont in we, Italy. We did Marlow last yeah. week. Yeah. Fantastic. And now we're coming to Marlow, off the beaten track. We are looking at Harrow and Hope. And uh, welcome again to our very special guest. It's Henry Lathway. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's super to have you here. And uh, because, do you know what? I've been doing this show for a couple of weeks now, well, a couple of months now, with uh, with Kath here, who's, um, I, I'm sure you know, a master of wine, one of 416 in the Entire world. Gosh, multiplying. Yes, <laughs> and honestly, she might be three hundred and sixteen. You might just bunged a hundred on there. I might have done. I might have done. And honestly, she doesn't know anything about it. If I'm honest, she hasn't got a clue. I'm sure, that's not true. <laughs> I don't know. One thing you do learn pretty quickly is you're never going to know it all. That's for sure. Yes, she a knows. Long passion. Yeah. She is like an encyclopedia. It's unbelievable. But um, it's great to have you here, anyway, uh, Henry. So, so first of all, then, um, tell us. I mean, this, this is going to be a stupid question, but but did did you just grow up with that passion because of your family in wine and winemaking or were you just dragged into it screaming you didn't I rebel mean, no i mean it's it's been there pretty much since i can remember you know since i was being able to walk sort of dragged around wineries on buying trips and and things like that so it was sort of inevitable i would get into into wine uh, in, you know unless i was teetotal which not even close um <laughs> I, you know it was always going to happen but i don't i don't know any teetotal winemakers no if diffi- anyone does very difficult job very difficult job um but i'd say the sort of moment that sticks in my mind was i left school and uh, I think my parents were just keen to get me out of the house and they sent me off to uh, to the Ardèche in the middle of France uh, when I was about 17 years old uh, just to, you know, to get some experience and I, I worked in this sort of beautiful sort of classic French village in the middle of nowhere um, and right next to it, as you get in France, these huge, great concrete co-ops. So all the grapes of the, the valley used to go to this co-op and it was me... Uh, an Aussie girl and a Frenchman and, uh, and a young Englishman, the three of us, it was our job to sort of, uh, you know, supervise the, the winemaking side. You know, I didn't really know anything by that <laughs> I point. I love that they were 17, they went... Off you go. Off you go. Can't even drink properly. But uh, <laughs> and that, you know, that point, that, you know, I sort of fell in love with, you know, not just the liquid, but, you know, French culture, how the fact in France it's, you know, it's sort of all-consuming. Everyone's involved in it in some way or form. It's an agricultural product. Like anything else, I like that sort of earthy, agricultural side of it uh, much more. And that was sort of my hook into getting into sort of wine production. Okay. Um, so working in a, in a co-op, just just to clarify, it's not like the co-op we get here in uh, down, down uh, Marlow no. High Street. It's, it's actually... It's a winery co-op. So you've got, you know, thousands of different growers. They've yeah. all got little plots of, of, of vineyards. It's their job to, to grow the grapes. And then, you know, when harvest comes around, they essentially deliver their grapes to the co-op. Um, and then the co-op pays them for, you know, whatever price for, for their grapes. And then they, they pass it on to a winemaker. And then either, yeah, they work with, you know, a lot of co-ops work with supermarkets to put together own labels, things like that. But it's a really good source um, for sort of retailers in the UK for, you know, good quality and good price. And there are some uh, really wine. good co- One of the best co-ops is the one in the Jura. They produce... Yeah unbelievable vinicol de fruitier they produce the most fantastic wines yeah and it's a really good introduction to a lesser known region alsace is really good the there's one, one down Chablis. longer yeah. yeah is amazing yeah. and they're so much better than they they used to be yeah these incredible terraced slopes that are really extreme so the quality of the fruit they often get is phenomenal so and you get it at really good prices yeah so, yeah don't ever put down a co-op they're brilliant yeah and like, sort of my father was, you know, he started this thing called Flying Winemakers many, many, many years ago where, you know, because of the different 
hemispheres in different seasons they used to bring over sort of Aussie and Kiwi winemakers or South African winemakers from the southern hemisphere to come and work in the northern hemisphere co-ops to sort of slightly try and improve the sort of winemaking side of things so the fruit quality was always amazing but sometimes the co-ops would lose the quality through the winemaking process so they get sort of new wave new world winemakers in to, to help that that process but that was quite a while ago and you know you know, co-ops these days are so much better, yeah. you know, producing wine. So it's not as necessary as it was back then. Okay. And and so that's where you, you, you found a, a love for not only the, the, the wine itself, but, but the whole sort of... Uh culture around it you know the ambience and the winemaking and stuff like that yeah. but you didn't stay in um france for for forever did you you've been you've been to other places around the world making wine yeah right? i mean mainly you know because of the hemispheres you can you know you can at least get two harvests in a year you know october september october in in the northern hemisphere and then sort of february march in the southern hemisphere so i would do a harvest in in mainly france sort of around either the rhone bergerac sort of bordeaux area in the northern hemisphere and then go over to australia mostly in sort of the mclaren vale sort of barossa area uh, for harvest there but very different sort of harvests you know in australia the wineries are, are pulling in fruit from all around australia so the harvest can last you know three four months long so and they're quite intense. You know, there's no two-hour lunches in Australia, unfortunately. <laughs> a big long two-hour lunches <laughs> no. with lots of wine. Exactly. So it is very different. But, you know, it was, you know, just having, looking at those two different sides and working with, you know, lots of fantastic winemakers. So I essentially learnt on the job, essentially working with, you know, yeah. amazing winemakers. Um, and what, what would you say are the main differences between old world, new world, sort of techniques, winemaking skills, or is it more or less sort of levelling out in the same? It's, I think it's more or less sort of levelling out now, you know, but back, you know, 20 years ago, you know, uh, new world was much more about control, you know, using cultured yeasts, enzymes, you know, fining agents, you know, lots Tem- of... Lots and lots of temperature control. Lots of temperature control, stainless steel, you know, they were, you know, they were essentially control freaks, you know, with wine, but the new new world has definitely changed a lot in the last 20 years they're much more um i'd say sort of you know european in their in their their outlook as far as you know more natural ferments less intervention you know less products going into the wine so i think it's definitely sort of evened out over the last yeah uh, 20 years for it's, sure it's been quite an interesting evolution because definitely control freaks is the way you you, you, you describe <laughs> it but actually in terms of technical winemaking i think for a lot of they were they were ahead because they really did study it at university yeah. whereas understanding of terroir and place sense of place and how that's conveyed through a grape into a glass of wine was much more clearly understood across the old world i mean there's that wonderful is it the bryce rankin book how to make wine or yeah something. yeah at, at great the back, book. there's yeah. a there's a glossary and terroir is put down as french for earthy yeah and it's made me laugh so much when i first saw it because but nowadays i think there's a greater understanding of the nuances of the different terroirs across the new world the, the, it is. It's a more of a level playing field now, yeah. I think. And I think they've understood as well, marketing wine as well. You know, when you talk about place, you talk about wines coming from a certain place and a certain character, it sort of premiumizes the wine and you can, you know, you can arguably charge more for it because you're focusing on a small area. You're trying to bring that character out into the wine. And it's, to be honest, it's just more interesting, I think. What would you say is the percentage of the, the, the winemaking effort? Because we've been talking about canopies and stuff today. It, this could be a question that it just depends how long a piece of string thing. I don't know. That's what I'm asking. Yeah. But what is the percentage of, of work, time, effort that goes into the canopy and the wines in the, in the vineyard um, compared to the rest of the process? 
Well, Catherine's probably heard this one, you know, where the, you know, all winemakers, the classic phrase these days is always, you know, wine is made in the vineyard. Or I literally 80%, just said it about yeah. two seconds yeah, before yeah. you arrived. 80% <laughs> of wine is made in the vineyard, you know, uh, the rest is made in wine. And yeah, it, to be honest, that's the way I look at it. You know, if you, if you put all your efforts into the growing season, you do everything you possibly can to the highest standards, you know, at the end of the day, if you come to the harvest and you've got great fruit, great flavour... The rest of it is pretty straightforward. You know, you really don't have to do much to transfer that. You know, you're essentially yeah. just uh, you're, you're a steward just to conserve the quality that you've got. Was, don't mess it up, it essentially. Was a South African guy, I think it was Eben Sardi that said to me, he said, you know, how do you make wine? They do? He goes, basically, my job is just to stop it from turning into vinegar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's essentially it. And I think Paul Pontellier, obviously, he was Margot, Chateau Margot. I remember him doing a talk once when I was doing the MW, and he was talking about it, and he said, basically, it's, you're just making tea. It's about maceration if you're making red yeah, wine. Infusions and that right. these days. That's yeah. all I have to do is think yeah. about how long it needs to soak for. Taste. <laughs> given vintage yeah. and when what's going to taste like and not mess it up. Yeah. Because if you've, if you've got, you know, if you've... Um, it is a little bit more complex yeah. than that, though, it's fair to say. <laughs> I'm sure it is, yeah. I'm yeah. sure it really is. But that's assuming you have perfect grapes. Some years yeah. it's not possible. You know, some years nature doesn't give you exactly what you want. Yeah. Um, and those years, you know, you do have to maybe intervene a bit more than you would like to. Uh, but that's just the reality of working with Mother Nature. So, yeah. so yeah. based on that, tell us a little bit about your... Because you work all from a single site. You don't buy any fruit in. No. Nope. It's a finite site. Tell us a little bit about it because I'd love to know more. Well, basically, yeah, myself and Kay, we lived out in France in sort of 2009 and then by the end of it we sort of knew we were coming home you know we wanted to sort of start a family etc etc and um and we could have moved anywhere in the uk to you know we knew we wanted to start a vineyard project we could have moved anywhere um but i was you know i'm from the thames valley born in reading and i could never understand why there weren't more vineyards in this stretch you know as the as the river cuts into the the chalk of the chilterns to me it, it sort of had everything um there. And we just looked at a map, and Marlow was pretty much in the middle. That's why we moved to Marlow because we looked at a map and thought, "Oh, that's pretty much. Let's move there. Looks quite nice. You know, nice place to raise a family." So we started renting, and then we started looking for a site. Um, and we had a few. We had one in Oxford, I think, or a couple in Oxford, but we'd have had to lease them, mm-hmm. um, long leases. And you know, I wasn't that, you know, hot on them. I didn't really f- get the feeling. Um, and then this site just sort of popped up on the internet. Um, and we sort of hopped over the was fence. Was it just pasture when you first saw it? Yeah, there's some horses in it, horsey that, culture. And it, you just felt it straight away? Yeah, I, I tell people... It's this magical, weird thing when you go into some, vin- some places, they're meant to be vineyards. Exactly. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was February, it was raining, you know, so <laughs> it's difficult, you know, but you know where the sun is. <laughs> um, and you just get, it's a bit like sometimes like buying a house, I say, you know, you just get a really good vibe. It's like, mm, yeah, this is it. This yeah. is what we've been looking for. Um, so we, you know, that just doesn't happen now. You know, if I, you just can't find land at the moment. It's, yeah. it's, it's impossible. But we just got a great feeling and we sort of snapped it up as soon as we could. And that was sort of uh, March, um, yeah, March 2010. And by May that year, we'd put the first 20,000 vines in. Wow. Um, so that whole process then. So it, it was a meadow or just a field with horses, horses in it. Yeah. So you had to like get rid of all the roots and grasses and stuff, I guess, did you? Yeah, yeah. So essentially, you know, plough it up, yeah. uh, subsoil it, um, yes, do soil analysis um, and, you know, look at the structure. You know, we sort of knew what was down there. You know, we knew it was going to be chalk, but we don't know how far down it's yeah. going to be. Um, what's on top of it? Is it clay? Is it flint? Um, but what I found fascinating when we did our 
our soil pits. So you dig, just essentially dig big holes in just to find out what's down there. We found this sort of layer about, you know, a, a sort of foot layer of gravel and sand, which had obviously been laid down by the River Thames yeah, sort of half a million years ago. So it was this gravelly sand that I thought, well, this is what's going to differentiate us from, you know, say... You know, Kent, Sussex. You know, it's this influence of the of the of the river on our sides. I thought, you know, that this classic terroir. You know, I can't explain how it's going to influence it, but it was different enough for me to make. Okay, this is going to be interesting. Let's see what yeah. this does to the to the fruit. Wow! And, and, and just sort of steaming ahead, probably like years. What does it do? Well. That's what we spend our life doing. You know, it's, it's, it's sometimes it's difficult. You know, when you put a, a vine in the ground, you know, the roots only go in, you know, probably half a foot max. So you've got to wait a good few years for those roots to get down. You know, sometimes they get down into the into the chalk. And so it's only in the last sort of few years we're sort of seeing, you know, the the effects of the soil on the uh, on the flavour of the wine. So it used to be, you know, you plant obviously your varieties. So we use the classic varieties, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier. And within those varieties, you've got different clones. So these are subtle genetic differences in that variety, essentially cuttings taken from the vineyards of Champagne, specific to producing sparkling wine. And those had quite an influence on the, the style of wine in the beginning. But as the roots have got deeper, the sort of soil effect is, 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 is growing uh, and having more of an influence. So we now sort of pick on soil types instead of clones. And yeah. I think that's where it starts to get interesting. Um, but so you know the vines are only the oldest vines are 11 years old so we're still so really young yeah we're yeah. still in the adolescence so I think it's going to take a good 20 years to you know really start to learn about our site and, and obviously that whole the blending process so the blending the assemblage stage I mean and then considering how that's going to be influenced by a secondary fermentation and then even looking at dosage trials at the all of those things every year must be like a crazy alchemy for you your brain must just explode yeah. with excitement because it's the most exciting thing to do anyway but to see because you'll be so familiar with them you'll notice those differences and you'll be so used to those different vintage influences as well that you'll start to see other things cropping up yeah so you've got to yeah try and take away what you think is vintage influence yeah. and what you think is soil influence and those are the things where sort of but we are now starting to see characters you know year on year yeah. in certain parcels like you know the chardonnay on the really chalky stuff does have this sort of more mineral sort of neutral but structured character to it every year so it really affects the acid structure and even the phenolic structure which obviously isn't as perceptible because the, the pressing for sparkling wine is really gentle yeah but you do feel the difference it does have a different texture and phenolic structure yeah alongside and the acidity traditionally yeah yeah so i'd love you know one year i'd like to just take every parcel and make a wine out of each parcel <laughs> and then you know find out because you'd learn so much mm. you know how it ages and you know so, so do yeah. you, have you tried to keep reserve wines? Yeah, so we, you know, we were, I mean, I'll have to be honest, you know, when I, when I started, when I knew we were going to make sparkling wine, you know, I'd spent 10 years making red wine, yeah. just red wine. It's all I drank. It's all I sort of cared about, you know, back in the, you know, you monstrous. You like a baptism of fire, don't yeah. you? Yeah, <laughs> I like a challenge. So you think on monstrous, you know, Shiraz is 15, 16%, you know, which was all the rage back then. Uh, and then now I was going to make these sort of delicate, really refined sparkling wines and, uh yeah, so it's a whole new discipline, but we did get some help, you know, initially with what you're talking about yeah. is trying to understand the process because it is much more complicated process mm. than, than still wine production. Um, it's a pretty scary thing to actually take on, I would imagine. And was there any point during the first couple of years where you just, you got some 
you know, I don't know, some, some wines or something happened and you just went, oh, no, this is not right. It must yeah. have happened somewhere. Well, I think way. because, yeah, when you start your winemaking, you know, it's all about, I think, the most important thing that you have in your winemaking toolkit is your palate, you know, and it's, it's about recognising flavours and, uh, and smells in a wine. And the key is not to panic. You know, if you smell something, you think, ooh, that doesn't smell good. You know, if you smelt it before, you know what it is and you know how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, if you've never smelled it before, I think, oh, God, what is that? What's it? You know, you're in risk of doing a knee-jerk reaction or, yeah. you know, doing something, doing something wrong. But experience builds up this, this knowledge, okay, this is fine, don't worry about it. If it's a bit re- reduced, it's a bit smelly, you know, yeah. doesn't bother me anymore. In fact, I quite like it. You know, it just means the wine is in a, in a good state, you know, it's reductive, it's not going to oxidise, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's, it's associating these smells, these flavours with a, with a chemical reaction, and, essentially. And, and actually that just backs up what, what Kath and I spoke, speak about quite often, is that it, this is when, if you can pay that extra bit for a bottle of wine, because so many people, I'm sure you're aware of this more than any, will go to the supermarket and £7.50 or reduce to, oh, I'll have a bit of that. But actually... Um, it's worth paying an extra ten, five. You drink better wine, not yeah. more. Yeah. And, and that's why, because you're getting all those years of expertise that, that actually is reflected in the final and, and actually glass. A, a really meticulous attention to detail and care. Yeah. I mean, it's genuinely, yeah. it's done with love and care and passion. And it does reflect through, without yeah. a shadow of a doubt. I mean, Catherine, no, what goes into making a £5 bottle of wine and what goes into making a fifteen twenty, you know, there is quite a difference in you know, meticulous care, love, you know, and that's why, yeah, when I buy it, I know exactly what, what people are going through yeah. when they're, you know, I almost buy wine these days, not on what it tastes like, but how they're farming, mm-hmm. you know, what their, you know, their story, if it's interesting, yeah. they're doing something interesting in the vineyard, you know, and hopefully the flavour backs it up and the, the wine is good. But to and me, it's, it's so story first criticize. these days. It's one of the things that actually, when people say to me, you know, how do I, I want to taste wine, I want to like put it on Instagram and talk about the wine I've been tasting. And so the first thing you have to learn is it's very easy to criticise. It's very easy to sit in the comfort of your home and your palate could be having a bad day. You don't necessarily mm. know that and easy to criticise. That's somebody's livelihood. Mm. And someone has put love, care and attention into that and always think twice before you say something because they've got one hit a year. You could taste 25 wines today and comment on all of them. Do you know, that, that's a really interesting yeah. point, and I never yeah. really thought of this. It hurts. But, but, <laughs> but it is, it's being sensitive. And I used to get asked a lot as a buyer, they'd say to me, what do you think? You know, tell me, give me, what do you really think? And particularly when I was really young, and there'd be some sort of an, an experienced winemaker asking me this, because I'm sat in front of him as someone who's buying for the market he wants to sell in, and as a master of wine, and... I learned very quickly that one, being honest is a good thing, but two, learning how to be honest in a diplomatic way if it, if it isn't quite right and to put it into a context because you can't sit there and say, well, this is, I think this is crap. I mean, you're entitled to that opinion if you want. It's not helpful. But it's not helpful and it's not <laughs> constructive. Yeah. And if they're asking you for advice, they're asking for more than that. And, and always everything can have a good point. And sometimes when you revisit a wine, it doesn't necessarily taste the way you tasted it last time. Yeah. Well, and that, sort of that's learning that you're as equally fallible as anyone else is also really important, keeping that humble. Well, that's what I was going to ask, because if, if you just said something earlier on that, you know, you might have a bad palate that day. Mm-hmm. So if I have, for example, um, eaten a pickled onion monster munch, yeah. that is going to affect the way I taste a, a finely delicate 
uh, wine that somebody's spent years yep. creating and mastering and I have a pickled onion monster munch have a bit of this wine and go oh no that doesn't taste good yeah. it could actually just be a fact of the flavours that I've had beforehand yep. yeah and it comes back to this that. sort of knee-jerk reaction that you know if I taste you know the one the, one of the bad things for sparkling wine is sugar if you have too much sugar and then you go taste it tastes really really dry and you think oh god that's that's a bit too dry mm. you know but you've just eaten a you know, millionaire shortbread. <laughs> of course, it's going to taste dry after that. So you just have to put, oh, yes, no, I did eat this. Okay, come back later. Yeah. And, and learning to put on a different hat when you taste. So, and I suppose that's was, was, is my job. You have to put on a different hat and think about, you know, think about something in terms of its, its quality, its price point, what's expressing how it's been made. Not always think, do I, don't I like it? Yes, that's valid to any consumer because it should bring them drinking pleasure. But just because you don't like something doesn't necessarily mean it isn't good. And I think people have to learn that when they're happily going to stick it out there in the public domain and potentially influence somebody and also upset someone. Yeah. So uh, just before we go to uh, our next break, uh, Henry, I was thinking earlier on, I I was really wondering, what's your philosophy on bottle ageing post-secondary fermentation? Kat's laughing because she wrote, I have no idea what I just asked you. Well, I, you know, it's a long and extensive answer. Um, <laughs> but basically, yeah, it's we have, you know, we produce, if we get a good year, what we, you know, call a vintage year, uh, the quality's great, we'll try and produce all four of our wines. So we have a non-vintage uh, brute, we have a, a vintage rosé, vintage Blanc de Blanc, vintage Blanc de Noir, and we have a sort of slightly different philosophy on winemaking and ageing and things yeah. like that on each of those those different wines. Some we age for longer because we think it, we need it. Some we age for shorter, like the rosé, because we want to express fruit character, etc. So, yeah, each wine, we don't essentially do the same thing for each wine. And each vintage is different. You know, some wines age quicker than other wines. It's, yeah, there's... You don't want to get into sort of a recipe format because, um, yeah, everything is different. And that's part of the intrigue about winemaking is every year is different, every wine is different, and you have to treat them, you know, differently every time. Yeah. They're like children. They are. <laughs> nuisance sometimes. <laughs> They're a nuisance. <laughs> well, listen, don't go anywhere. You are listening to Uncorked with Brian and Kath here on River Radio. Right after this, we're going to be talking more to Henry Lathwaite, and we're going to be finding out some of the best, wines that are out there in his opinion and finding out what we should be going out and buying for our summer barbecues and also about his own range from Harrow and Hope and what we can expect as and when we buy there. Don't go anywhere, we'll be right back after this. In a world where radio stations are ten a penny Can I have ten radio stations please? That'll be a penny lad. Thank you. There is one radio station. There can be only one. There can be only one. There can be only one. That stands out from the crowd. I want that one. Alright. What is this thing? It's River Radio. There can be only one. One that's made entirely out of syrup. (laughs) Will you count me in? I've been awake for a while now. You got me feeling like a child now. Cause every time I see a bubbly face I get the tingles in a silly place It starts in my toes and I crinkle my nose Wherever it goes I always know that you make me smile Please stay for a while now Just take your time wherever you go The rain is falling on my windowpane 
safer place Undercover, staying dry and warm You give me feelings that I adore They start in my toes, make me crinkle my nose Wherever it goes, I always know That you make me smile, please stay for a while now Just take your time, wherever you go Starts in my toes, makes me crinkle my nose Wherever it goes, I always know That you make me smile, please stay for a while now Just take your time, wherever you go Starts in my soul and I lose all control When you kiss my nose, the feeling shows Cause you make me smile, baby, just take your time now are ten a penny. Can I have ten radio stations, please? That'll be a penny, love. Thank you. There is one radio station. There can be only one. There can be only one. There can be only one. That stands out from the crowd. I want that one. All right. What is this thing? It's River Radio. There can be only one. One that's made entirely out of syrup. There we go, that was Kobe and Bubbly <laughs> um, that we just listened to, but we are right back here now on Uncorked, Brian and Kath and Henry uh, Lathwaite. Welcome again, Henry. Thank you. It's great to have you here. We've been talking about, um, you know, your experience and, uh, you know, uh, how you got into it and some of the uh, places you've worked and, and, and ideas you have and how to make the wine. I'd like to see a go, or we'd like to talk more now about Harrow and Hope, which is your current project or yep. the main project. Lifelong you, project. Lifelong yeah. project. <laughs> and some of, the, um, some of the wines you're making there. So are they, are they all white sparkling wines or white and rosé wines? They're all traditional method sparkling wines. Yeah, we sort of uh, nailed our flag to them. I said, this is, you know, this is what we want to do. This is what we want to focus on. Um, you know, having never done it before was quite a... <laughs> quite a feat um but yeah so we essentially uh produce yeah if we get a good year four wines but they're all they're all uh, traditional method fizz um and as i said we do a 
a non-vintage, which is our our most important wine. You know, um, because why do we do a non-vintage? Well, essentially because we are in the sort of northern reaches of what's possible as far as viticulture is concerned. And in reality, what that means is, you know, we'll get our fair share of good years, some great years, but, you know, we'll probably get a high number of tough years. Um, and how do you mitigate that sort of up and down nature of, of the climate? Well, non-vintage is, is the tool we have in sparkling wine production to, to smooth out those bumps. Uh, okay, let's just talk about that just, just in case, you know, people aren't aware exactly what a vintage is and what a non-vintage is. Is, is this to do with you trying to keep the house blend or style consistent yeah i don't house style is something i don't really you know i'm not particularly bothered about house style ultimately the vineyard is will determine the style you know i can't talk about that it's 80 percent the vineyard and then talk about a house style because you know that means i'm influencing too much i'm standardizing too much um so that the style comes out of the vineyard the non-vintage is essentially you know every year from from the first year we pick grapes we just keep back a bit of wine you know a bit in reserve in barrel or in tank and now we've got to the point where we've got about 80 barrels of reserve wine in our in our cellar so that if nature decides to deal us a a tough hand then we know we've got enough material in our winery that we can produce you know the same standard of our brute nv and all it non-vintage all it means is it's a blend of different years some people call it multi-vintage it's just a a posher way of saying non-vintage it essentially means the same thing um, but it's essentially, you know, it's always based on one year, but then you build in anything between 15 and 40% reserve wines in, into every wine. Okay. And so that, that's, that's, as you said, I think um, that's your, your main one or the, or the main one? Yeah, or it's, the it's, one? It's, it's, it's our highest production. Your yeah. highest production, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so how about some of the other ones then? What, how do they differ? I mean, obviously one's a rosé. Um, but, so but what, I was going to pick you up, what's, what's the main, do you have, and I know you don't work to a recipe, but a broad, does, does the normal, the brute tends to fall with a particular varietal? So the, the brute, yeah, the brute, we always keep the same, roughly yeah. the same varietal because it's, and it's the same split that we've got in the vineyard. Yes. So we want a wine that essentially represents it's the whole site. Makes sense. And that's, that's essentially what we try and, and do. And so what's the split usually? So it's 40% Pinot Noir, mm-hmm. 20% Pinot Meunier and 40% Chardonnay. So it's, yeah, nice balance. So, you know, before we put a vine in the ground, me and Kate, my wife, we obviously did some extensive tasting um, around champagne. It's essential. Just to, you know, you've got to make something that you enjoy. That's, you know, that's the whole point. And and we came back from our travels, you know, on the decision that we always seem to prefer the wines that had more Pinot in them. Mm -hmm. They just suited our palates. They just suited our style. So we planted the vineyard according to what we we wanted to make. Um, Saying that, since then, we do do a Blanc de Blanc, you know, which is a very popular wine. Um, so yeah, it's it's difficult when you first make your wines. You know, you're not going to sell them for four years, so you have no idea how they're going to sell. Or ha- so Such before before that, that what first wine comes out, you've already made three vintages. So you've got to put your finger in the air and go, mm, I wonder which is going to be the most popular. I wonder which is you know which is going to sell the best. You know, you have no idea. So you sort of just stick your finger in the air and have a guess first. But then as you start selling, you sort of build up. You know what certain wines might be more popular than others. You know, some wines you're selling the on-trade, some wines are good for export, and all this stuff you, you learn quite So you're, you're, you're exporting these as well? Yeah, quite a, quite a lot now. It's, it's, yeah, certainly the beginning of this year. It's obviously last year, standstill. You know, no one was importing anything. It was very quiet. And then beginning of this year, you know, uh, Scandinavia, they seem to have got a taste for, for English sparking wine. Um, so we're in, currently in sort of Sweden, Denmark, Finland, uh, Norway... Um, and then a bit in the US, you know, small, relatively small volumes at the moment. But, you know, it's, you know, it's a nice feeling that you know, there's people out there in, in Europe that are tasting 
and loving English market wine. I think it's great. Have you have you ever had any any feedback from? I'm, I'm sure you must know and have friends and contacts in Champagne and areas like that. Have you have you had feedback from these people? Are they are they a little bit standoffish, or are they are they going? Oh, actually, these are these are nice. Well, how, how how do they take it? Is what I'm asking here. Well, I've got a few. I've got a few sort of grower. Uh, champagne grower friends um, and I always I drop a bottle off and I go and go and see them and you know French I, fi- I find them so funny they're, they're hilarious you know they're, they're they know but they're so proud of their their uh, their products that they're you know they'll give a compliment but they won't go too far if you know what I mean I, because I have, I have an old boss yeah. who, who lives in Burgundy yeah. on one of his favorite things he doesn't do it every time he doesn't want them to catch on too much when he has growers and he knows everyone in Burgundy he loves to give them as their aperitif an English sparkling wine. And without fail, they'll say, is this a grower of champagne? Yeah. <laughs> it's good to trick. Yeah, it's good to trick. And it, yeah. And obviously, yeah, he loves France. He lives France. He's a complete Francophile. But yeah, yeah he still quite likes going, oh, no, actually, it's English. <laughs> uh, I think, that, you know, the champagne, the French, they, they now realise that, you know, we're not the, the, the joke anymore. We're, we're, we're serious pretenders to their throne you know it's that's the reality of it and uh, as you guys have probably talked about there's you know we're starting to see some uh, champagne houses come into the uk now which sort of just sort of rubber stamps the fact that you know that's the way it's going Ah, interesting. Yeah. And so uh, traditionally in this section of the show, Menu Match, we talk about um, the, the wines and what goes with them. So um, I'm going to ask you about your wines there, Henry, and what, um, what, what you think would be the, the, the best dishes to go with each of your um, sparkling so wines I'm, I'm a big fan of people learning that they can drink sparkling wine throughout a meal. Not just as yeah. an aperitif, you see, which is the easy option, and there's nothing wrong with it. Very happy to do it. Yeah, but it, they do work often throughout a meal. Yeah, especially yeah, especially the the sort of drier the drier ones. Yeah. You know, I'm a sort of big fan of. I'm big into grow champagne. I spend stupid amounts of money on <laughs> drinking grow champagne, and they're, they're particularly some of them are you know really dry, and arguably some of them really do need food mm-hmm. to really bring out the the, the best character. But uh, you know, as far as our wines, yeah, I mean. If I could, you know, I tend to drink them for me on their own, but that's purely because I can never not analyse them, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's yeah. it's yeah. obsessive. You know, I can't just sit down and relax <laughs> and enjoy my wine. It is impossible. Oh, really? That's why I drink other people's wine, because at least I can relax. At least I can analyse, you know, and critique or praise something else. is much easier than drinking your own wine all the time. It gets slightly... Out the holes. And yeah, I should have done this. I should have done that. Could I have done this? You know, could I have done this? You know, you <laughs> should know. I pick that a bit later? Should I yeah. pick that earlier? Mm. But, you know, it's, you know, sparking wine, you know, it's... I'm not very good at sort of saying food matches for sparkling, you know, but one thing I've learned recently was, you know, enjoying cheese with sparkling wine. That's something that, you know, I did a, um, a tasting with uh, Paxton, Paxton and Whitfield, the cheese mm-hmm. people in London, and they were matching certain cheeses to our range of wines, and I found it absolutely fascinating. And they were sort of saying that, yeah, it's actually a better match than red wine because red wine, because of the tannins, it curdles, curdles the cheese in your mouth. Um, which does take the edge off the wine, but you know, with sparkling wine, it's a much better match for, yeah, for cheese than red so wine. Which you'd I go there are some. There, are, I mean, it, it has to be quite specific. And I know growers who will refuse to have their red wines served with cheeses if they do dinners. They'll ask for their white wines to be served with them. They are. Interesting. Yeah. Fun, funnily enough, talking of cheese, um, Kath has been uh, barking on for the last few weeks <laughs> about the uh, the cheese shack head, the cheese hut. 
Nettle bed. No, ne- no, um, nettle bed. Yeah, nettle bed cheeses. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I did a tasting with them as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, so I went there last weekend. Did you try the Witheridge? Yes, I bought some. Oh, oh isn't it good? See, now, Amazing for cheeses. For me, yeah. when I look at your wines, Brut Reserve would work brilliantly with Witheridge, but I yeah. also think the Blanc de Noir, something which has that little bit of extra structure. Yeah, the, the Blanc de Noir is quite a. Yeah, it's a very intense wine. Yeah. It's aged the longest, and Pinot has this much, uh, I call it sort of meaty, chewy texture to it. Chardonnay can be very fresh. Finesse, but Pinot's got some, you know, it's I got call some guts. It, yeah, got some guts to it. <laughs> so it goes, you know, it can it can take, you know, yeah. some something quite strong. Oh, I always get to this yeah. point. I don't want I want some cheese <laughs> and flipping wine now, yeah. don't I? The other thing that I think across the board, sparkling wine works brilliantly with is sushi. Oh yes, really yeah, yeah. good. Yeah, an English sparkling wine, I think, come, because it has that. Because often it's oily fish, things like tuna and salmon that are used widely in sushi, even mackerel and things. If you're having slightly more extreme sushi or you can get things like abalone if you're eating real sushi and it has a creamy texture in the acidity that we have particularly the acidity in english sparkling wine just cuts through yeah. really well and provides balance yeah and you know cured meats as well i like having cured meats with you know with wish with, with again the fat the acid work very well together yeah you mentioned crisps you know, maybe not months to munch, but you know, the what's sort of it? They're what's cheesy. it? They could be. Yes. No, <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think I think you've, you've got to, you've got to up your cheese game, your, your, your crisp game, if you're going to have English sparkling wine. Have I, I think you've got to go back to your kettle chips. Surely I've there's a whole show there, isn't there, oh. matching crisp oh, brands? Oh, we've done it. To, uh, I'm sure you've already <laughs> done it. <laughs> we had a selection, and poor Tariq was put through put through his paces. <laughs> um, but actually, we did find some. Rev- it's that moment yeah. when you find rev- you're like, that actually really works. Yeah, but it's- I think. I think in English sparkling wine, one of the things for me that makes it so unique is the acidity. And I'm, I'm sure with time, the differences in region will become clearer as well. But it has... And it, I don't actually know what the analysis, whether it's high in malic. I don't think it is, because usually mostly you'll be using malolactic. So you do malolactic. Yeah, we do yeah. full malolactic. But malic is a bit, yeah, it's an odd but one. It, but it has that green apple quality. The acidity has a freshness and a clarity to it that is different to champagne. Yeah. No, I could bit you know... Most of the time you can pick champagne versus, you know, yeah. I like both. But, yeah, freshness, you know, English wines don't suffer from freshness. Where you can, you know, freshness is an issue that they're, they're, they're de- dealing with in champagne because of climate yeah. change. Um, but, yeah, no lack of acidity in England. So, so talking of, of climate change and, and Harrow and Hope, do you think there will be a time in the future where you will start looking at reds or is that just too far away? I try it every year. Oh, do you? <laughs> do, yeah. So do you make some still wines we as well? Do, we, do, we do a red wine for our... We, when we make our rosé, we essentially do use the assemblage so you, method. So okay. we, we make a small amount of red wine that we then blend back into the, the base wine that we've created for the rosé. For me, I just it gives the best fruit expression uh, in, the, in the wine. That's why we do it. And you're allowed to do it. Yes. It's the only, I think, category you're it's actually allowed, category, you're yeah. allowed to blend red wine and white wine together. This, yeah. this sounds all very, very exciting. So if I want to come and visit Harrow and Hope, do you have a cellar door? Can I come and visit? We, know, we now have a cellar door. Yes, we're Ooh. open weekdays from 8.30 to 4.30. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyone can pop up and... Uh, do, you, and do you need to book or you just pop in? Uh, just to buy, you can just pop in. Uh, we do tours and tastings. Sadly, they're all they're all. Sold out at the moment, but uh, hopefully there'll be some more on on, on next year. Uh, and uh, we also have a, a, a mailing list, which is quite important. We do pre-releases. We sort of create our own en primeur, yeah. so we sell our vintage wines a couple of months before release just to our mailing list and that's probably the best way to buy so uh, where do i get on the mailing list how do i do that if you get on the website you can just sign up and then you should get an email in september for our next release which is our new blanc de blanc 2017 and the website at harrowandhope.com 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 whereabouts in marlow exactly are you so the brewery rebellion brewery if you're going towards the brewery we're essentially on the right on top of the hill there so it's pump lane north 
Okay. Oh, but I can find those details on the website. It's on the yes. website, yeah. Oh, easy, easy. Maybe that's Technology. my next trip out. Yeah. That's, that's where I'll be going, and I'll bring my Watsits. Do it. Bring a range of crisps. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll be able to answer your question about food much more clearly next time. <laughs> okay. So, um, so okay, what, what, can we buy these online as well? Is there a, sort of like a delivery type thing we can do or what? So online, yeah, we sell by the case and by the gift box. Uh, but we have some, obviously, we sell through, through Lathwaite's as well. So you can buy sort of by the bottle, national delivery. We work with independent retailers uh, around the country as well. Um, yeah, basically, you Google it, you'll find it. Yeah. Um, oh, joys of technology. Joys of technology. Going to yeah. be googling. I really am. Really, that just leaves us to say a massive, massive thank you. Yeah, thank you so, to so Henry much. Henry thank you very much for having will me. Will you come and have, join us I again? I have like four hundred and fifty thousand questions I want to ask you, so I will have to come and visit very soon. <laughs> definitely, you'll definitely. come and visit again. Brilliant. Uh, we'll look forward to that. Um, and don't forget, we'll be back next week on River Radio. Coming up on River Radio, rest of the day, at six till seven tonight, is Anna, Ask Annabelle with Annabelle Knight. She is our sex and relationship expert, and she'll be covering all things like that. Tomorrow, the morning brew, seven till nine, with Nikki and Tara. And then up next, uh, nine until 11, with Gemma Lee James. All that leaves me to say is thanks once once again to Henry Lathwaite, Harrow and Hope, and Kath. Thank you. We'll Thank be you. back next week with more of the same. Bye for now. Have a good week. Drink less. But better. <laughs>